So our topic this week from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 9, Drunk Noah. Very interesting account in the Bible, starting in chapter 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And I like that last part there. From these, the whole earth was populated. From these three. God kind of puts that in there. He's already done with the Noah story, the flood story, you know. And, he, and if it was just as some people want to try and make us believe, it was just an analogy or just a story, just, you know, something to teach some spiritual lesson. But it really wasn't a worldwide flood. Uh, then why would God then put this here again? You know, he just kind of, you know, doubles down. No, I'm serious. This is, was a real story. It was a real account. And it's from these eight people that everybody who is alive in the world today uh, came from, right? So again, the Bible is either God's just a flat-out liar, you know, and just keeps that lie going over and over and over again, or it is real, and I believe it is real, right? It's true, as it was written. And it also here gives the names of the sons of Noah and List them, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And, and it seems that that is, and it's done through the Bible in many places with many people, that that's the order that they were born, right? So Shem was probably the first, and then Ham, and then Japheth after that. So Ham being the, the middle son there. And then it mentions Ham the father, or Ham was the father of Canaan, which is kind of interesting because it doesn't mention here in this verse any of Shem's children, doesn't mention any of Japheth's children, and Ham had four children. Doesn't mention any of the other three children. So why all of a sudden it just kind of throws that in there? Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. Oh, and by the way, Ham is the father of Canaan. Why even mention him? And he's the, he's the fourth in the mention, mentioning when it, we do get to the portion where it mentions Ham's children. And of the four, Canaan is the last one. So why on earth is he mentioned here? It kind of seems kind of out of place. Kind of throws them in there, and he mentions four people, and it says, from these three, <laughs> and as I mentioned, Canaan, again, just doesn't seem, just seems out of place, until we keep reading. Oh, and my thing stopped, Barbara, help me out here. I don't know what happened here. So verse 20, Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard, and then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And then the next verse, it's into this very strange story we read in the Bible, verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Noah said, Cursed be Canaan, servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. So again, kind of a strange story, and that's basically the, the fullness of the story, plus a couple of verses we just read, and there'll be another couple of verses after this. But here's the bulk of this account. And uh, here Canaan is mentioned again. It starts off with Ham, the father of Canaan, which again seems kind of out of place, mentioning him again. Ham in this section is mentioned three times. Once just being the middle name between Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and twice 
Ham being the father of Canaan. Canaan is mentioned five times in this passage, twice being the son of Ham, and three times being cursed or the servant of servants. So Ham, uh, Canaan rather, has a bigger, as far as name mentions in this section, is more often mentioned than even his father, more often than Shem, and more often than Japheth, and I think maybe even more often than Noah. And why is that? So let's again look at this account. So Noah got drunk, was naked. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And then they go and they take this garment, lay it over their shoulders, and they walk backwards so that they're covering their father without seeing their father. And then there in verse 24, Noah awoke from his wine and he knew what his younger son had done to him. So something was done to him, and maybe it was just that Ham saw him. Well, how would he know that his son Ham saw him, unless maybe he told him, or the two other brothers told him? Or something happened that he knew something had happened to him. And he calls him his younger son. Now again, as we looked at the Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Japheth would have been the younger son, if by naming them it was in order of their birth. And then it says, cursed be Canaan. Not cursed be Ham for seeing his father naked, but cursed be Ham, Canaan. And know maybe at first of all, maybe he just was so angry at Ham, he, he couldn't even mention his name. <laughs> so, but then there are these three other sons. So if the curse was on Ham and all of his descendants, then how come the other three sons of Ham don't get cursed, but only Canaan gets cursed? So again, it's kind of a mystery, kind of a mysterious, mysterious, mysterious story here. And, uh, but I, and so there's you know, not enough evidence, not enough information here for us to really lock down. For whatever reason, God put that in there for us to know. This is what I think maybe, uh, my theory on it, I'll just throw it out there, take it or leave it for whatever it's worth. I think that Noah got drunk. Canaan went in to the tent, maybe innocently. You know, want to talk to his grandfather. And even where it says, your younger son, in the Hebrew that easily can be translated younger grandson and would still be perfectly correct. And Canaan is the fourth one mentioned of Ham. If, again, the order of mention is the order of birth, then Canaan would be the last of Ham's children anyway and maybe then the youngest of all the grandchildren. So I think Canaan went in and did something not good at all to his grandfather. Ham happened to be walking by, maybe heard something, maybe wanted to go talk to his father, went in the tent and saw what was going on and then didn't know what to do about it, and he goes out and tells his brothers, and his brothers then take action and cover his father, and thus the curse upon Canaan, and not even a condemnation of Ham, but the curse only on Canaan. Anyway, that's my theory on that. Now that's the whole of that story. If you want to dig it more into it, there's not much more to dig. <laughs> you don't want to try to dig something up that's uh, not there. Maybe 
Well, that's fine, but let's continue back into to the story. In verse 26, Noah said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Ham, I mean the God of Shem, I'm sorry, and may Canaan be his servant. So he pronounces a blessing upon Shem, but even here he gets in this dig about Canaan again. And then verse 27, may God enlarge Jepheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And now again he's blessing Japheth, and he still can't get away without somehow getting another dig in about Canaan being a servant. And Ham's not mentioned at all at being blessed, and so there's no mention of, of him. And again, that's the totality of that story. And then it mentions, verse 28, Noah lived after the flood 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now, that's a long time. That's almost as long as Methuselah. I think it might even be longer than Adam. And so 350 years after the flood means he lives just prior to Abraham being born. I think he's short of Abraham by two years. But Shem is still alive into Abraham and even into Isaac's life. And so Shem can give a firsthand account of the flood to Abraham and Isaac. And Noah being 600 years before the flood takes him all the way back or takes uh, almost to Adam's uh, life dies about, or he's born about 80 years after uh, Adam dies, but uh, Adam's son uh, Seth is still alive when Noah is alive. So you have, uh, you know, Adam, Seth, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, uh, or rather Noah, um, Shem, uh, Abraham, and Isaac. All right, so just not that many generations for the story to continue for Abraham to hear the story of the flood firsthand of Noah and what Noah learned from uh, Seth secondhand and from what Seth heard so it's like third fourth hand Abraham's getting the story and that's not too far generation not too many uh, jumps to get a pretty accurate account of uh, the events of creation all the way literally thousands of years into Earth's history. And so that kind of basically ends the, in the Bible, the historical account of Noah. But let's go back to this verse in verse 20, still Genesis chapter 9. Noah began, began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard, and then he drank of the wine and was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. So there's another kind of strange story here. So two stories within a story that very strange, this account of Noah becoming drunk and becoming uncovered in his tent. And so what is all that about? And it says Noah began to be a farmer. So if he began to be a farmer after the flood, it might indicate that he wasn't a farmer before the flood. It doesn't tell us what he was before the flood. Right? He might have been a hat salesman. And then after everyone was dead, there was no one to sell hats to, right? So what am I going to do? Right? So he decided, well, maybe I'll be a farmer. Right? So that seems like a, a good enough profession, right? And, uh, yeah, well, he was a boat builder just prior to the flood. And maybe he had some carpentry skills. And that would go along with hat selling, right? You know, so that would be a talent that would carry over. But uh, so he began to be a farmer. And maybe he didn't have any experience with that before, but now he's starting his hand. He doesn't have much choice. They need to eat. And so he began to be a farmer, and he has his plants a vineyard, and then out of that vineyard, he drinks some of its wine, and he becomes drunk. 
Now, why would Noah get drunk? Especially when the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God, nor will drunkards inherit the kingdom of God? And yet at the same time, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, we read, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation, and Noah walked with God. And Ezekiel corresponds with that verse, chapter 14, verse 14. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. That's a pretty high pedestal to put them on, but Noah with Daniel and Job, righteous men, no fault recorded against Daniel in his life. Job, after all the calamities, even in all that, he did not sin against the Lord. And so how could Noah get drunk? Was he nowhere a drunkard? As it says here, drunkards don't inherit the kingdom of God. But yet he was perfect in his generation. He walked with God. Doesn't seem to be in harmony, does it? And it's not. And so, again, I'm just guesstimating here. That's a word. That maybe Noah didn't realize what was happening. That he had this grapes and, from his vineyard and it became it made it into grape juice, and some of it fermented over time, and ignorantly drinking it, not realizing it had changed, and he accidentally got drunk by it. Could have also been that things were different after the flood than before the flood. No doubt changes had taken place on the earth and the atmosphere as a result. Climate changed and different things took place. As a result, didn't rain before the flood, water came up from the earth, so no doubt things were different. And so maybe things were not fermenting prior to the flood. We have no mention of people getting drunk prior to the flood. It says men were eating and drinking and giving in marriage. Well, there's nothing wrong with eating and giving in marriage. So the type of drinking they were talking about was not necessarily drunkenness drinking. It could have been water they were drinking. They were just eating, drinking, living life, and marrying and giving in marriage prior to the flood. And so there's no record, and so it might have been something happened, and again, it wasn't expecting this juice of the grape to go bad, and wasn't expecting to get drunk. So that's my take on that, that's my thinking. Again, you know, whatever, I don't think he purposely got drunk, because again, that would not be in harmony with how the Bible describes his character, and not in harmony with what the Bible says about drunkards. I mean, if Someone took you, kidnapped you, drugged you up against your will, tied you up and, you know, injected drugs into you. You know, you wouldn't be held accountable uh, for that. That would be against your will. And so if it was, again, not his will, not his choice, something happened accidentally, then that would bring everything in harmony together. Let's look a little bit more at what the Bible says about this drunkenness. It says, Noah drank of the wine and was drunk. And he became uncovered in his tent, and Noah awoke from his wine, and he knew what his younger son had done to him. So it didn't work out well, did it? And yet, amazingly, I've had people tell me, oh, it's okay for Bible believers to drink alcohol. I mean, Noah drank. Well, yeah, he did, and it wasn't really great. You want that happening to you? I don't think so. So if that's your example of godliness, and that's okay, then... 
That's not such a great example. Let's look at some other examples in the Bible of people drinking. Ten chapters later, Genesis 19, verse 33, Lot's daughters made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And then the next night, the uh, younger daughter does the same thing. That's not a great thing. Incest is not a great thing. And out of that, two evil nations come about. They're a problem to God's people from then on. So that's not a great example of drinking alcohol, is it? In the book of Esther, chapter 1, verse 10, and on the seventh day when the heat, and when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded seven eunuchs to bring Queen Vashti before the king. And if you're familiar with the story, he ends up uh, <laughs> not having a, the queen anymore, and he has to go looking for a new queen, and he's upset that he was drunk, and he's upset that he made that stupid decision uh, to command Vashti to come before him at that point and in that way, and he regrets that decision. So that's not a good testimony for getting drunk. In Mark chapter 6, verse 21, Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles. Herodias' daughter came in and danced and pleased Herod, and the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. The head of John the Baptist. The king was exceedingly sorry, and immediately the king sent an executioner, and he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Again, not a great story about drinking. I don't think there's any good stories about drinking alcohol in the Bible. The Bible says, Proverbs 20, verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Wine is a mocker. Makes you a fool. Why would anyone who reads the Bible, professes to be following God, support drinking alcohol when all it does is mock us, leads us astray, causes us to be not wise, destroys brain cells? Now, whether you say, well, we're not talking about being a drunkard, just moderate drinking, just a little bit. Well, even a little bit, every drink, every glass of wine, or any brain-altering drug, marijuana could be, you know, it wasn't mentioned in the Bible, it wasn't around in Bible times, but same thing, same principle, any mind-altering, body-altering drug mocks us. kills brain cells. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have any to spare. <laughs> you know, I'm having a hard time with just the ones I have. <laughs> and if I lose any more, it's not going to be good at all. And they don't replace. That's one of the things in our body that do not replenish, which is an interesting thing. And every drink will kill brain cells. And every drink will cause us to not be thinking as clearly as we were before even just a little bit. They do not sleep unless they have done evil. Their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. Proverbs 4, 
verse 16. Lots of fights in bars and lots of fights in marriages and a lot of abuse of children because of alcohol. How can we support that industry at all? Do not mix, in Proverbs 23, verse 20, do not mix with drunkards of wine. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Well, that's quite a list. Hey, who wants any of those things? Anyone here want woe? Anyone here want sorrow? Anyone here want contentions? Anyone here want complaints? Anyone else want wounds without cause? I guess so. Because there are people in this world who experience these things and yet they go back to the bottle over and over again to re-experience it over and over again. Who has woe? Who has problems in their marriages? Who's been fired from their jobs? Who's lost things? Who has said stupid things that they wouldn't have said otherwise? Who has done stupid things that they would not have done otherwise? Those who drink alcohol or other mind-altering drugs. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup. When it swirls around smoothly, at the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. That's from Proverbs 23, verse 30, starting verse 31 and 32. Do not even look at it when it's red, when it's sparkling in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. In other words, it's saying when it's fermenting, when it's going through that fermenting process, when it begins to turn color, when it begins to sparkle, when it begins to move and bubble, don't even look at it. Stay away from it. It'll bite you. You'll see strange things. She sees yeah, does that look like a pleasant experience, right? You want to sit there like that? Right? Does not look like fun to me. See strange things, see things differently. Lust of the eye, pride of life. How many unwanted pregnancies, how many lives destroyed because of few drinks of alcohol? And how many is too many? You say, oh, well, we don't believe in drunkenness. We don't believe in drinking too much. Well, how much is too much? What's the number? What's the limit? You can't name it. Because what's different for one person, what causes one person to not get drunk would cause another person to get drunk. What might not make someone drunk today would make them drunk tomorrow. All depending how much they've eaten that day, how long it's been since they've eaten. Lots of different factors will take, come into effect on what will cause you to have too much or not have too much. And again, even one will kill brain cells. Even one will cause you to do things you would not have done otherwise and begin to deaden the frontal lobe, and it's through the frontal lobe where the seal of God is. It's also in the frontal lobe where the mark of the beast will be found. Then those decisions that we make, our frontal lobe begins to shut down immediately on every single drop of alcohol, 
And that is why we don't decide things well when we've had mind-altering drugs. Your heart will utter perverse things. We will say things that we later regret and you can't take it back. Things that'll get us fired, things that'll cause divorces, things that'll get us punched. <laughs> we will utter stupid things. Isaiah 5, verse 22. Woe to mighty men at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. Does that guy look very mighty to you? Does that look very valiant to you? Doesn't look like fun to me. But amazing we go back to it like a dog going back and eating its vomit. Isaiah 28, verse 7, but they also have erred through wine. Deuteronomy 32, verse 33, their wine is the poison of serpents. We err through wine. We make mistakes through wine. Cause accidents. Thousands of people are killed every year in accidents. Innocent people, children killed, maimed for life. Tens of thousands every single year because of alcohol. How many think it's possible for someone within the next three hours to do something that would drastically alter the rest of their life? Just within the next three hours. Yeah, you think so? Yeah. Texting while driving, right? You know, anything can alter, some stupid decision can alter your life for the rest of your life and other people's lives for the rest of their lives. And alcohol can make that happen even easier. Make a, make a stupid decision, a stupid act. Slow down our perception, even just a hair can make the decision between an accident and not an accident. We err through wine. Many errors have taken place. Again, we saw them biblically. You no doubt have seen it in your life, the people you know, people around you, or stories you've read and stories you've heard. How on earth could Bible-believing people support that? Leviticus 10, verse 9, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you. When you go into the tabernacle of meetings, at least you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. This is the counsel given to um, Aaron. Aaron's sons died, were struck down. I believe from this text that they were drunk in the tabernacle and thus struck down as they made a dumb decision and brought strange fire in before the Lord. The Bible says, don't bring it into the tabernacle of the Levites, and all of us are called to be Levites. All of us are called to be ministers for the Lord in a spiritual sense. It says, don't bring it into your bodies. Don't bring it into your temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't bring it into the temple. And yet, in some religious circles, 
some Orthodox circles, they get stone drunk on Purim. Passover, drinking four glasses of alcohol in some circles. Some circles, communion, drinking alcohol, bringing it into the synagogues and into the churches. The Bible says don't bring it in to God's house. And we are God's house. Amazing. Daniel, we already read how righteous Daniel was with Noah and Job. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Now, for him to tell the king, I'm not going to eat your food, I'm not going to eat your pork, and I'm not going to drink your wine, was a death sentence. He's saying, I'd rather die, I'd rather be killed, I'd rather be executed than drink your wine and eat your pork. He took it pretty seriously. Obviously, it was a serious injunction that God said, you're going to die if you bring that into the temple, bring it into the sanctuary. God took it seriously. Daniel took it seriously. You think Daniel was wrong? You think that was a stupid choice? <laughs> Daniel, what were you thinking? You think in the judgment, God's going to say, Daniel, what were you thinking? You almost blew the whole thing. If I didn't go in there and work some miracle for you, you didn't have to do that. It was dumb. <laughs> Drink a little wine, you know, whatever. It wouldn't have been the end of the world. Then don't get drunk. You would have been okay. You risked your life. We wouldn't have the rest of the book of Daniel. We wouldn't have the prophecies of Daniel. We wouldn't have the miracles there. We wouldn't have Nebuchadnezzar coming to the Lord. You almost blew it, Daniel. Why didn't you just drink the wine and eat the pork? It wouldn't have mattered that much. No. Daniel was righteous because he wouldn't do these things. He followed God's word. He understood God's word. And as he's listed, among the righteous. So it was important enough to Daniel to risk his life. It should be important to us as well. Yeshua, they offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. Even as a painkiller, while, while he's dying in excruciating pain, 39 whips, his skin ripped out of his back with from bones and glass on whips, thorns in his skull, holes in his hands, nails in his hands and feet, whipped, beaten, hanging there, bones becoming out of joint, you know, down in excruciating pain. And at a mercy, someone offered him some pain medicine, some painkiller, and he refused it. He didn't want his brain to be fogged at all. He wanted to be clear in his thinking, to make it all the way to the end, to endure it to the end. Now, if he wasn't going to drink the myrrh as a painkiller, do we really think he was drinking wine at the Passover just a few hours earlier? Alcoholic wine? That wouldn't make sense. I mean, if it was okay for him to drink four glasses at the Passover just a few hours earlier, why wouldn't he drink it now? He wouldn't take it. There's confusion over this word wine. Look back at what dictionary, 1955, the Funkin Wagner's New Standard Dictionary of the English Language defines wine, the fermented juice of the grape, in loose language, the juice of the grape, whether fermented or not. 
Let's just go back to 1955. It's not that long ago. And even in the English language, wine could be understood as fermented or unfermented. Now we're getting to where some of the problem in the Bible takes place. Go back to 1822, Webster's Dictionary, must, new wine, wine pressed from the grape, but not fermented. And so, but we only have this word wine, as it says here. There are in the Hebrew scriptures, but two generic words to designate such drinks as may be of an intoxicating nature when fermented, and which are not so before fermentation. In the Hebrew scriptures, the word yayin, in its broadest meaning, designates grape juice, or the liquid which the fruit of the vine yields. This may be new or old, sweet or sour, fermented or unfermented, intoxicating or unintoxicating. See, so when the Bible was translated, most of it like the King James, older versions, the word wine could have meant either or. You'd have to understand it in the context of the sentence of which it really was, whether it was grape juice, unfermented, or whether it was alcohol, fermented. You'd read it in the context of the story. But today in our society, we just use wine to refer to only to the alcoholic beverage. And so unfortunately, the Bible translators use the word wine all the time, or basically all the time, for yayin. Mark chapter 14, verse 25. At that last Passover, Yeshua's last Seder, his last supper, Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So he's telling us he's going to drink. He's not going to drink. It's going to be his last meal, his last supper. He's not going to drink anymore until he drinks it together with us new in the kingdom of God. Are we going to drink alcoholic wine with Yeshua in the kingdom of God in the new heavens and new earth? No. There won't be any death, there won't be any fermenting, there won't be any rotting away of anything. So he's going to drink with us in heaven, the same way he drank with his disciples here, then it was unfermented grape juice they were drinking that day. And he even uses a phrase, fruit of the vine. Not wine of the bottle in the wine cellar. <laughs> a fruit, fresh, on the vine still. Right? When you, you know, the fruit of the vine, what do you picture there? You're picturing you know, grapes growing on a vine, there, grabbing them, squeezing them, getting the juice right out of them. They're fresh. Again, not out of a bottle, out of a wine and spirit store. Isaiah 65, verse 8, Thus says the Lord, As the new wine is found in the cluster, one says, Do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it. Isaiah 55, 1, Everyone who thirsts, come to the water, and you, will have, uh, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and price. In Proverbs 3, 10, Your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. So in the context of these three passages, which type of wine is it talking about there? 
new wine, he uses the word new there twice, but one time it doesn't even use the word new. So again, in context, they're talking about alcoholic wine, or is it talking about unalcoholic wine, unalcoholic grape juice, unalcoholic. Yes, yeah, so you just read it in context. It's not that hard. And the translators of the Bible, if they would use that type of common sense, they'd have grape juice in there a whole lot more. And on the horrible stories, like we read of the people getting drunk and doing stupid things, they would use the word wine. And they would use grape juice for when there's a blessing in it. Right? Like in that middle passage there, right, Isaiah 55, uh, where it doesn't use the word new wine, it just says wine, it says buy wine and milk. Talking about sour milk? Hey, if you go buy sour milk, is that what he's encouraging you? Go buy sour milk? Would anyone interpret that as going and buying sour milk? If we're not going to interpret that as buying sour milk, why would we interpret it as buying sour grape juice? <laughs> Rotting grape juice. Fermenting grape juice, right? Dying grape juice. But as a conclusion, people jump to, because again, the way we use the word wine, and I think it's more than just the way we use the word. Because again, I, I think it's pretty plain. I don't think it's really theological. It's not a theological strong stance that they have. I think it's the carnal nature. And the carnal desires that's wanting to believe that it's okay in moderation. Some people say, well, you couldn't keep grape juice fresh for long periods of time. Well, here is a uh, Count of Columbia, a Roman agriculturist and a contemporary of the apostles. So it goes all the way back to biblical times that he wrote, wrote several books, records a recipe to keep grape juice unfermented. You take 90 pints of the best must in a barrel, that's grape juice, and 80 pounds are added to it uh, of oil, added to it, a small bag of spices, and it goes through the whole recipe. And he's got several recipes on how to keep it. And then down to the bottom, it says, leaving the juice pure and unfermented. Another recipe I read, it said that they will keep it pure for uh, even a year. So you can keep it long periods of time in its unfermented state, even to the next season in its unfermented state by sealing it, keeping uh, air from getting in, other liquids coming in. And that's with new wine, for new wineskins. If it's new, fresh, you're able to seal it, no leaks, not dried out, it'll stay fresh. Seal it with this type of process. If you have an old wineskin, well, there was some juice left in there after you finished it, after you drank it, and that what was left on the, on the inside of the skin would eventually rot and sour. You weren't able to clean it all out. And then if you put any new in there, it's going to mix with that. And even if you sealed it, it would still ferment. And then it would ferment and it would expand. And when it expands, it'll bust the wine skin. And so Yeshua used that as an analogy that we are new temples now. We are new creatures now. All things have changed. And what we put into ourselves needs to be new as well, not only on the physical, but on the spiritual. We are new bodies. We're temples of the Holy Spirit. We get filled with the Holy Spirit not the evil spirit, not the things that cause death, not the things that represent dying, not the things that represent rotting and going bad, but things that are pure and holy and just and righteous and that preserves, that saves, that maintains, that lives. Exodus chapter 29, verse 40 
With one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of pressed oil and one-fourth of a hin of wine as a drink offering. And 2 Chronicles 31, verse 5, the children of Israel brought in abundance of the first fruits of grain and wine, oil and honey, and of all the produce of the field. So again, in context, this is talking about alcoholic wine in either of these two passages, or fresh grape juice. I think it's pretty clear it's fresh grape juice. Right? The lamb has to be without blemish. And so the lamb can't be old and rotting and dead for a long time, or broken bones or bruised in any way, without blemish. So if the lamb has to be without blemish, and the flour can have leaven mixed with it, and the pressed oil has to be the first press, virgin oil, first press of the oil, then how much would he allow then old, fermenting, dying grape juice, rotting grape juice, be used with those other items that all have to be pure and fresh. And the same with that Second Chronicles text. It says, first fruits of the grain and wine. Produce of the field. Again, not produce of the wine cellar, but produce of the field. First fruits. Again, fresh is the indication here. And why would they bring alcoholic wine for tithe that's going to be given to the Levites when we read that the Levites were not allowed to drink alcoholic wine. <laughs> I mean, that wouldn't make any sense at all, would it? But it's this word wine, and again, sometimes it's misperceived. But again, I think a little common sense and reasoning is not the issue of this use of this term, but more of our carnal hearts that want to try and find something that's really not there. They'll use texts like 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23. No longer drink only wine, uh, drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. So those who, uh, who read the Bible who want to promote and encourage or allow the drinking of alcohol in moderation will quote this text. Well, it's not the alcohol that helps your stomach. <laughs> And alcohol is not medicinal for the stomach. If anything, it'll cause ulcers or problems and give you cirrhosis of the liver and, and other internal problems. It's not going to be helpful. It's the grapes that are medicinal. It's the properties within the grape itself, which might still be there even after it's fermented, but it's the grapes that work the healing. It's grape juice that's good for the stomach and good for other parts of the body that God blessed and God gave it to us for. Unfortunately, these studies that are done that show, oh, look, it's good for your heart. Alcohol wine is good for your heart. Well, it's all the alcohol companies who paid for those studies. <laughs> and it's the grape juice companies that don't have the money to pay for the studies. But it's the grape juice. that If they did that same study with people just drinking grape juice, they'd find even better results than they are with the alcohol. So again, it's not the alcoholic propensities. It's the grape juice in the wine. <laughs> that would prove anything helpful. But even here, even if it was, even if Paul was recommending to Timothy, prescribing to Timothy alcoholic wine here, it's a prescription. Right? If you had a truck run over your chest and break your ribs in 18 places and shatter your hip, and you went to the hospital in excruciating pain, 
and they prescribe morphine to you, would that mean that your spouse can go get some morphine for themselves too? And that everyone else you know can have morphine as well? No, it's a prescription for a time and a purpose for a specific situation. Right? Just even with any type of medicines that are prescribed nowadays, even not something as strong as morphine, you're not supposed to take medicine that was prescribed for someone else. Right? So there's a prescription. If that, even if it was alcoholic, and there's no proof it's one way or the other, again, other than it's the grape juice that does medicinally help people. But even if it's a prescription, it's a prescription. That's not to be used as a text to try and prove that it's okay. Oh, Noah drank wine. Yeah, he got drunk. <laughs> oh, Paul told Timothy to drink some wine. Well, it was a prescription. It doesn't have such lame, nothing really uh, to offer. And quoting, well, in Passover Seders, they drink alcohol. Well, we're not going to use modern Judaism as our example. Oh, in some churches, they use it for communion. We're not going to let that be our example either, right? What's our example? Where do we go for knowledge and truth? The Bible, the Bible and the Bible alone, right? The Bible. And we see these texts where it says it's a mocker. It'll make you see strange things. It'll bring woe into your life, bring calamity into your life. 40% of alcohol users develop serious drinking problems. We know that today. Out of 100 people who drink alcohol for the first time in their life, a beer or wine, that 40% of them will eventually end up with problems. Serious drinking problems. 40%, that's a high percentage. Four out of 10. Even if we cut that in half, even 20%, 2 out of 10. That's horrible. You had a dog, would you keep a dog that bit 2 out of every 5 people? I mean, 5 out of every 5 people that come to your house, he bites 2 of them? Would you go to a house that they had a dog that bit 2 out of every 5 people that show up? So don't worry, he bit someone yesterday. You should be okay today. <laughs> Statistically, you got a good chance today. <laughs> Would you go in? No. And uh, most often, I think, having a serious alcohol problem would be a lot worse than getting bit by a dog in most cases. So then they quote, oh, John 2, verse 6 and 7, Yeshua uh, made water into wine. Nearby stood six stone water jars filled to the brim. So they're standing on their own. They're not on a shelf. These are big jars. Six of them filled to the brim, and he turns the water into wine. That's enough to douse and stone out the whole entire village, let alone a wedding. Was Yeshua in the business of encouraging drunkenness? No. And again, with the statistics we know today, and no doubt Yeshua knew, the effects of alcohol. He's the one who inspired Solomon and Proverbs and the other writings and things we've read, Isaiah and others. He gave us, and it was the first time the disciples drank alcohol and he turned this into alcoholic wine. That means statistically, anywhere from two to four of his disciples are going to become alcoholics and have problems. That'd be a good thing. There are 100 people at the wedding. 20 to 40 people of them are going to become alcoholic? 
They're going to have donkey accidents on their way home from the wedding. You know, is that, is that what he'd be encouraging? And he brings it out. What does the master of the ceremony say? Oh, this is the best tasting. Most people save the, the do the best at the beginning and the and and save the the uh, the worst for last. You've done the opposite. Well, he says, oh, this is the best I've ever tasted. Now, why did he need to do the turning the water into wine? Because they ran out. Why did they run out? Because they drank it all. <laughs> So they drank it all, and they already had enough, right? I mean, no doubt there were some people, if it was all alcoholic wine they've been serving all that time, and they're all gone, that means some people are drunk, right? I mean, have you ever been to a wedding that had alcoholic wine and nobody there ever got drunk? Right? There's always somebody there who's drinking too much. So if there are some people there that have already drank too much, and Yeshua makes it this best wine ever, that's tasting wine ever, then even that drunk who's full is going to want more. Hey, you go to a dinner and you're at someone's house and they make you, and you eat and you eat and you're full and so much. Oh, that was delicious. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm full. And they go, oh, wait, wait. I made this beautiful dessert. I made it myself. It's my grandmother's recipe. Everybody loves it. Oh, you've got to try it, right? Oh, you got to do, right? And someone else tries it. Oh, this is the best pie I ever had, right? Everyone's got to taste a piece. So he comes out, oh, this is the best. I never want, even want to, people who had drank too much are going to even drink more. Is that in harmony with the character of Yeshua? Encouraging drunkenness? That wouldn't be just encouraging moderation. That would be encouraging drunkenness. I had a, I stopped at a gas station not far from here, and a guy came up to me and asked me for some money. And uh, I said, well, I'll take you over to that place across the street and I'll get you something to eat. He said, well, to be truthful, I really don't want food. I want to go in here and get some alcohol. And I said, well, Yeshua can set you free. Jesus can set you free. And uh, he said, well, he turned water to wine. So even for that one person, Yeshua would not have been that wrong example. And there are many, many alcoholics today quoting that, misquoting that. So I don't believe it was alcohol at that wine, at that wedding, that he turned that water to. I believe it was pure grape juice. And that was the best and purest. Well, one of the ways, again, we read some of the ways they can preserve grape juice. One of the ways would be to dry it out. Make it like a leather, right? Fruit leather. Dry it out. Like we dry stuff today, concentrate stuff today. And, and then when you'd want grape juice, you'd add water to it, and you'd dissolve it, and then you got grape juice again. Well, depending how much water you mix to your dried out grape, uh, dried out grapes, it, how sweet it would be. Right? And at the end of the wedding, when people have had enough and you want them to go home anyway, <laughs> then you water it down more and you make it stretch even further. But you had one that wasn't concentrated, was fresh. This is the best. And so he would give what tasted the best. Well, why? Why did this Yeshua's first miracle? Why would he do this as his first miracle? Was it just to show off he has the power to do stuff? Or was he sanctifying marriage and pointing forward to his death? 
Because what came out of him when he died, when they stabbed him? Water and blood. And the fruit of the vine, the blood of the grape, as the Bible calls it, represents his blood. Was his blood impure? Was it rotting? Right, so what would be the symbolism of alcoholic wine to represent the blood of Messiah that cleanses us of all sin? Yeshua lived a sinless life. And because he lived that sinless life, he was able to be that perfect sacrifice in our behalf. And like the spotless lambs, the lambs without blemish, he was able to give his blood for us. Because he was pure in mind and body and spirit. And that pure blood that he shed for us gives us life, an eternal life. And so the fruit of the vine is representative of life, of abundance. Because if you had a bad crop that year, you would just eat the grapes. If you didn't have enough, you would only make juice when you have more than enough, when you have, because there's a lot of waste in making juice. You don't get nearly as much out of the grape as eating it fresh as you do out of grape juice. Right? So if you have enough to eat all the grapes you want and all the grapes you can sell and then all the grapes you can dry and make raisins out of and you still have so much and, and then you make grape juice out of it because you have so much it's going to spoil, it's going to go bad and so let's turn it into grape juice because we've got so much. Then we drink it down even though there's waste and, and again we can uh, preserve it for a time. So, so grape juice is a representation of plenty. Abundance, a good season, a good year. And so would Yeshua use something, turn the water into something that represents life, purity, fresh, life-giving, healing for his first miracle to represent himself, the vessel that held water and then held the blood of the grape? Or would he use a symbol of something that's dying, that's dead, that's rotting, that's fermenting, that's gone bad, that causes death to organs, that causes death to brain cells, that causes people to do stupid things, to say stupid things, to get into fights, to cause accidents, to cause death, to cause divorce, to cause abuse, to cause heartache? Is that the symbolism that he would use? But in synagogues and in churches all over the world, they're using death as a symbol of Yeshua's life. That's sacrilegious. They've taken the whole thing and twisted it upside down to their own destruction. Mark 9, 42, whoever causes one of the little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. Our example is very important. How we live our lives is very important. We will be held accountable for the example we live. And if we cause someone else to stumble, be better if we were dead. 
We read four out of 10 people who drink alcohol. You might be one of the ones, oh, I, I can drink. I, I've been drinking for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. I've never gotten drunk. I just have one glass once in a while, once at a wedding, once at a few, some, some occasion. Once in a while, it doesn't affect me. And it might not, other than a few dead brain cells, maybe at the time cause you to do and say stupid things, which could again cause an accident. But so far, so good. But what effects is it having on others? What are the chances your children will follow your example? And 40% of them can end up with an alcoholic problem or a drug problem, get any illicit drugs that applies to all of that. Is that worth it? You want your children to have divorces and lose jobs and get in the car accidents, have their license taken away from them, lose their incomes? Maybe not your own children, but example to others, other people in the congregation, other people who attended that wedding or that event. They see your example and then they do the same. We'll be held accountable. And again, chances are you've come in contact with more than 10 people at some event when you were drinking and they saw you and they know you're a godly person and they see your example and then they follow suit. And thus then chances are four of them will have a problem, serious problem. Again, even if we cut that in half, even if two of them, even if we cut that in half, even if one of them, one out of 10, would that be worth it? How would you feel if you made it to heaven and during the judgment that God opens up the records and you get to look over it, God shows you that someone's not in heaven because of your example. Someone's life was ruined because of your example. Some young child was killed in a car accident because your example encouraged someone else to drink. How on earth can we as believers encourage the use of something that destroys God's temple and destroys so many lives in this world? If Bible believers would take a stand for right and truth, you never would have had alcohol allowed and legal again in this country. And now we're seeing the same thing happening with marijuana, state after state after state, because believers are not standing up and not speaking up against these evils that are destroying people's lives. Anyway, we're not talking about medicinally, we're talking about unmedicinally. And again, in most of these things, it's not the alcohol or the THC that has the medicine. Deuteronomy 21, 19, his father and his mother shall say to the elders of the city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. 
so shall they put the evil from among them, put away the evil from among them, and all Israel shall hear and fear. See, God takes drunkenness pretty seriously. He even encouraged parents to stone their children. They become drunkards. How can we encourage it? Not only encouraging people by our example, how on earth can we give money to an industry that encourages drunkenness and causes horrible tragedies to take place in families and in people's lives all around the globe? So again, maybe you get away with it, maybe you drink and don't get drunk, but every time you spend every penny on any alcohol, you are giving the money to an industry that is killing people and keeping people out of heaven. So again, how can congregations buy it in bulk and give it to their members? Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And amazingly, I've had Bible believers quote this text and tell me, see, it's okay to drink a little bit of wine. It's okay to drink in moderation. It says, don't be drunk. So as long as we don't get drunk, it's okay. Well, if we take that thinking and apply it to the text, so moderation drinking, well, that means moderation in the Holy Spirit, right? Because the text there is showing the two extremes. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. They're saying, well, it's okay to be drunk with a little bit of wine, so it's okay to just have a little bit of the Holy Spirit. Is it okay to have a little bit of the Holy Spirit? No, it's not okay to have a little bit of the Holy Spirit. It's either all or nothing. We need all of the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not a little bit, not half and half. And so that's why he uses that analogy, don't be drunk, but he's showing the other extreme, that he wants us to be full. Not trying to say, oh, it's okay. Again, they take and twist to our own destruction and to the destruction of others. God wants us to be filled with his spirit. And I don't think it's by accident, I think it's satanic, that these liquor stores have these signs and bars that say, wine and spirits. It's just the opposite. The evil spirits, and they know it. And it's in contradiction and a contrast to God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. I mean, you look at even the labels, right? They got this skull and crossbones. <laughs> you know, I mean, how on earth can anyone think that's good? Anyone who believes in life, anyone who believes in God, anyone who believes in everlasting life, God wants us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you want to be filled with the evil spirits of alcohol? Do you want God's temple, his body, your body that God gave to you to take care of, your mind that God gave you to bless you, to speak and communicate with God through? God speaks to us through our minds. Do you want your mind to be deadened? Or do you want to hear God's voice? Do you want to hear his spirit saying, this is the way walk ye in it? Or would you rather err? Would you want to speak perverse things? Think and see Perverse things. Do you want to see God? Do you want to see his face? Do you want to feel his touch? Do you want to experience God? With an open mind, with a clear mind, with a healthy mind, with a clean conscience, with a pure heart, with a healthy liver. 
I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the choices. And I think Paul writes it here as the contrast. You can't have both, either one or the other. Do you want the Holy Spirit? Do you want to be filled with him? Do you want the pure and spotless blood of Yeshua to wash you clean of all your sins and all unrighteousness? Or something corrupt, dying, rotting, going bad? That's our choices. As for me and my household, we choose to serve the Lord. So in a moment when we pray, if when you walked in here, maybe you thought moderation would be okay. Maybe you think drinking a little bit of wine was okay. You thought maybe it was biblical. Maybe you were taught wrong. And that's fine, but now you see something different. You want God to change your thinking and not only change your thinking, but change your action, change your life. It's going to take more than just hearing a sermon. It's going to take a miracle of God to then change and break the habit. It's amazing. No alcoholics think they're alcoholics. I shouldn't say no. <laughs> Most alcoholics don't think they're alcoholic. Right? So it's, we think we're doing moderation. So we deceive ourselves. Our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So it might only be one little drink of wine, a glass of wine a day. But it could still be alcoholic. You could still be an alcoholic with that. You may never get drunk, but you'd still be an alcoholic the pattern and so it needs the holy spirit needs the power of god needs the blood of yeshua to break that habit even if it's once a year it needs the power of the lord to break it and so in a moment when we pray if that applies to you let the blood of yeshua break that in your life break that chain and maybe it's generational it takes the blood of yeshua to break that and when we pray ask god to break that in your life and especially if you were taught from a religious cycle, and that adds to the satanic attachment. So you can ask Yeshua to break that cycle in your life as we pray. Secondly, if you have drank alcohol in the past, and maybe if you are now or not now, but in the past you were, and you want to ask the Lord to forgive you for the past mistakes that you've made and the past example that you were. And in a moment when we pray, you can ask God to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Third, if you have drinking, drank in the past, or again, any illicit mind-altering, body-altering drug, and you want to ask God to break the influence that you had on others, People that you know, maybe people you don't even know. People you went to the store, someone you don't even know. They say, you do it, hey, others are doing it, I'll do it too. You want to ask the Holy Spirit and angels to go out to those people. Maybe it was years ago, decades ago. You want to ask God to send angels to those people and deliver those people from your wrong example. Set them free to break the pattern that's in their life because our wrong examples. In a moment we pray, you can... Ask God to do that. Fourth, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we need to allow God to empty us of all self. And the more we allow him to empty us of all self, selfishness and carnal and sin, the more he's able to fill us up. So we want to be filled with his Spirit, filled with the fruits of the Spirit. Right? Fruit of the Spirit. Right? Not fermented fruit but fresh fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, meekness, 
goodness, kindness, self-control. We need the fruit of the Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to give us self-control, to say no. It's not just, well, just say no. We don't have the power in our human nature to just say no. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the gifts of the Spirit. We need the fruit of the Spirit to have the power to say no. So if you've been trying for a while to give it up, stop trying and ask, surrender to the Lord. Confess your habit to him. and Ask the Holy Spirit to come in with that gift of self-control to break the pattern, give you the power to say no, and to deliver you from all unrighteousness. So if you want to be filled with the Spirit, filled with the gifts of the Spirit, filled with the fruit of the Spirit, in a moment when we pray, ask God to fill you. Or maybe something else God spoke to your heart and mind about as we discuss these things. Maybe you're grieving. Maybe you caused some calamities in your life. Maybe you, you, a marriage ended because of past alcohol use or any drug use. Maybe you lost some job in the past. Maybe some financial crisis in your past. Maybe you repented of it. Maybe you've been freed from it. Are you still carrying the weight of that? Give that over to the Lord. Surrender it to him. Accept his forgiveness for past mistakes. Let us pray. Our Lord, our God, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us your example in your life and in your death and in your miracles, in your character and examples like Daniel and others. Thank you, Lord, for their example. Live your life in us as well. Make us godly examples for you. Examples of purity, not to be stumbling blocks. Forgive us for past mistakes and wash us clean. We claim the blood of Yeshua over our lives to break the chains and cut the root at the, the tree at the root, to kill it, the habit, the evil inclination, the evil desires. Break us free by the power and blood of you, Lord. The Lord rebuke you, Satan, over all these evil, mind-altering drugs. Destroy the spirit and destroy the body. Lord God, fill us with your spirit. Fill us with new lives, new minds, new hearts. Fill us with your blood, pure and holy. Give us life and everlasting life, an abundant life here. Use us in winning people for your kingdom. Forgive us for the past and go and redeem the time and send angels out to redeem those who we've been wrong examples to. Forgive us for the lives and the past ruin that we've left. And turn even those horrible things out together for good. In Yeshua's holy name, fill us with your spirit bottom of our feet to the top of our skull, every part of our body, in Yeshua's holy name. Amen.